0: Hi, I'm Michelle. Hi, I'm Tara. Welcome back to Books in Beyond with Bound, where we talk to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick. And on this episode, we spoke to Sonia Palero. She's known for making narrative non-fiction popular in India. She's written two mind-blowing books, Beautiful Thing and The Good Girls. While her first book covers bar dancers' lives like no other book I've read before, Her latest, The Good Girls, investigates the death of two teen girls in U.P.
1: You know, Michelle, when I was reading this, I was like, every line in this book reads like fiction. You know, you can see, you can feel, you can think from these characters' point of view. You can, you immersed in the setting. But the best part is, it's all non-fiction. I was so fascinated by the kind of research that she went into. And we know that she went to Uttar Pradesh to find answers. And the journey wasn't easy. And she shared with us that, you know, even a man, this one man threatened to attack her. I mean, just imagine. Yeah, I mean, I was deeply moved by her concern for these girls, Sarah. I mean, it's, it's not just
0: the curiosity, right? Like, so journalists are curious to find answers. But, you know, she cared enough to go there and, and find answers, you know, had it not been for the book, I'm sure these girls' lives would have been forgotten. Um, So, you know, one scene from the book has really stayed with me for the way Sonia wrote it, you know, to show how Padma and Lali are just two young girls who want to experience the ordinary joys of life, like going to the Mela. And, you know, they were not allowed to, but they secretly went anyway. I find that really memorable.
1: Yeah, there's a whole book uh, reads like a whodunit. It reads like a thriller. I mean, the skill level in terms of the writing, characters, the pace, the whodunit, and obviously the empathy um, was just wonderful. It just came alive. And if you are a writer who wants to learn how to make your characters come alive on the page, reach out to us at connect at because we have a whole host of writing mentors that can help you do that.
0: Yeah, and for now, let's dive into our conversation with Falero. Yeah. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much for having me. So, Sonia, Tara and I loved your books, and we actually wanted to talk to you because of your commitment towards the narrative nonfiction genre, which uh, India is totally new to. And so we wanted to know what about this genre really draws you
2: so, what uh, narrative nonfiction does is uh gives me the opportunity to report and study, to educate myself uh about the things that you know that that I spend a lot of time thinking about that I am engaged with, that I'm concerned by, so you know, in the case of the good girls, for example, uh these are issues around poverty, gender caste, politics, how all of these things, the, the amalgam of them, affects and disrupts the lives of people uh, in India, particularly girls and women. Um, but what is what, what makes narrative nonfiction so appealing is that it allows me to explore these things through the lives of people. And, you know, Institutions and policies and and, and systems are all very interesting and obviously essential to understand. But to my mind, the best way to learn about their impact uh, on people is through the lived experiences of people. And, and that's what I get to do with uh, this particular uh, form. And so, for example, The Good Girls, which, you know, you, you've described as novelistic, which is a characteristic of narrative nonfiction in that it uses uh, certain techniques of novel writing. You know, for example, narrative structure, um, you know, an and, and emphasis on characters. But while being strictly committed to the rules of nonfiction and the primary rule, of nonfiction, as as of course you know, is uh, an a, a, a adherence to facts. So, you know, while adhering to facts, while adhering to to chronology, while making sure that nothing changes uh, in relation to how it actually happened, the story is presented in a way that makes uh, the lives of 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 these particular. Um, children, Padma, who I call Padma and Lali, the most important thing about all the events that take place uh, around them?
1: I really, really loved, um, you know, both Beautiful Thing and The Good Girls. And I remember I read Beautiful Thing last year and I immediately put it as, you know, one of the best books that I read this year. And then I read, uh, you know, I was so excited for this new book, The Good Girls, which in which you investigate the death of these two teenage girls. Every single line, even though it was so simple, felt like there was so much research, you know, that went behind it, Um, you know. And I really like that that you included in your afterward, your whole research, a lot of your research process, uh, because that's what we try to do on this podcast, find out, you know, uh, author's creative process. But we read that basically Good Girls was meant to be part of a larger work on sexual violence. And then it turned out to be the whole book. So why? And what was your experience then expanding that story into a book?
2: Well, you know, I had been thinking about what to write after a beautiful thing, and I had experimented with various stories for many years and never really found anything that, that spoke to me in a way that made me want to commit to it, right? Because the difference between uh, doing a, a piece of long form, which may be, say, five or 8,000 words, and writing an actual book which is 80 to 100,000 words is knowing whether there is enough material and whether it is you know relevant enough but ultimately whether I I want to commit 5 or 6 years of my life to it right because um because that's how long it takes me to write a book and I have to be through that process I have to be committed and the commitment comes from being interested um and 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 constantly wanting to know more, you know, it is as much a pursuit and a quest for me as an individual, than uh, you know, the, than uh, uh, as, as it is as as just a piece of um, a journalism. But uh, in in 2012, uh, uh, as you of course know, in in December in Delhi, a young physiotherapy student boarded a bus, thinking that it was a public bus, and uh, was was set upon by six men. Who raped her? Who tortured her? And who threw her and her friend out on the roads? This was about nine pm, I believe, and you know the, the streets, as you uh, as you would know, were, were thundering with traffic, but nobody stopped. And you know the the protests uh, were unforgettable. They, it, it was like the entire country let out a collective howl of anguish. And for me, having grown up. Uh, in Delhi, having experienced, uh, you know, visceral fear of of assault, the death of that young woman, um, you know, felt very personal. It was really a, a, a transformative ex- experience for me. Uh, and I I wanted to process how I was feeling. And I thought that one way to do it would be to write about sexual violence in India, because, you know, you will remember that prior to 2012, we heard about cases, but the deluge of cases that were reported after 2012 was unprecedented. And and of course, it doesn't mean that, you know, the cases were rising. Uh, It it means primarily that cases were being reported and then written about in in, in the media. And um, in May of 2014, uh, I was in London. I'd, I'd moved by then, and I saw a picture of of two children hanging in a tree. The girls, uh, who I call Padma and Lalli now, were sixteen and fourteen. And the rumour at the time was that these girls had been raped and, and killed, and then hanged uh, from a tree by by dominant caste men. And you know, it, it really struck me that that we were circulating an image of children. Dead children, and uh, I decided that I would make that uh that crime the centerpiece of this larger book that was still sort of you know coming together in my mind. But when I went to the village in which the children had lived, Katra Savathkanj, which is in western Uttar Pradesh, uh, by then a year had passed, so I was right in time for you know the first death anniversary of the girls i I just had a very strange experience you know um. Everybody who, who, who was closely associated to the case was very gracious. They gave me their time. Um, they, they repeated themselves. You know, they must have been, uh, gosh, they must have given hundreds of interviews by then. And yet after being there for a week, I really didn't feel confident that I had a story. I was not confident that I could write about this in my book in any form. So I guess at that point I was faced with, um, with with the choice of look do I do I just write the story down the way it has been presented to me by the people of the village even though I know there are major holes in the story do I drop the story entirely and find something else or do I just stick with it and try and figure out what happened to the children on the night they went missing and I guess maybe by that time I had come too far you know, uh, just in terms of being invested in in the whole idea that I thought, you know, I just might as well stay and figure out what happened. And and, and so that's, that's really what it was. I mean, it was just the
0: other day I was telling Tara that, you know, as women, you know, when we browse the news, doesn't matter which news channel or which newspaper you're looking at, there are so many, uh, you know, uh, crimes against women that are reported, and you know, God only knows how many are not reported. But you know, all of these stories, you know, they are just you know they they are circulated for a day or two and they just disappear. But the fact that you know the story of these two girls, Padma and Lali, really you know, like did something to you, made you go there over the course of five years, find out what exactly happened to them. I mean, it's it's not just courageous, but I think it 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 just you know awakens your
1: conscience. Coming to your research process, you did mention the number of interviews that you did and the hundreds of questions that you asked. And we also read that you studied, you know, more than 3,000 pages of documents. Uh, Wow. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, we really wanted to know, how did you decide even how to conduct your research? So, like, when you were asking, you know, all the villagers these questions and trying to find out more about this uh, about the death of these two girls, what kinds of questions did you come up with? What was your research process in the interview uh, scenario?
2: So, you know, uh, you have to keep in mind that uh, the 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 primary uh, protagonist, so to speak, um, of the story, uh, you know, of course, uh, aside from Padma and I had been talking to reporters for a year, you know, I mean, uh, is Padma's Father, for example, Jivan Lal, um, Lalli's father, Sohan Lal, uh, were really the face, particularly Sohan Lal, I would say, were really the face of the of series of terrible events that took place. And their wives also spoke uh, to the media, much less so. So, you know, by the time I came to it, you know, they, they were just speaking like uh, it was a recorded conversation. There was nothing new. This is not. Uh, this is not a unique uh, phenomenon right whenever you talk to people at the center of very high profile cases people who have been at the center of enormous media attention they they repeat the same answers that they've been giving for a year or for however long uh, th- that they've been the focus and so the challenge then is how do you get people to break out of that groove and tell you something that you don't know, because often the things that they don't say are what matters, not the stuff that they have already been, say, been saying for, for months. Uh, another thing that happens, you know, is, is is that people wherever they are in in India today, they are very very much aware of how the media works. And one of the things they understood about the media was that you know the media doesn't want your long winded explanations. The media wants pithy answers. The media wants you to get to the point very, very quickly. And the media wants you to speak in very simple language. Um, they are not wrong about any of these things. But when you try to simplify what you're saying, you leave out a lot of details. And then you get used to leaving out details. And therefore, you create a narrative which does not have detail. I then need to come in and say, I, I need to know more. I need more texture. I need more details. I need more names. And if that, that that particular individual who has been talking nonstop for a year has made a an error, you know, a factual error, the first time they said something, then you can be sure that they will continue to make that factual error without without realizing it. So. One example that may not seem to your listeners to be super important, but was actually really, really critical was the, the story that had made it to the papers, which was that the, the eyewitness to the children's disappearance in the fields was their uncle, Nazru. right? We know that uh, the girls, Padman Lali, had left their house at uh, about 9 p.m., uh, and they had said they were going to go to the toilet. They took a phone with them. By toilet, they meant to the fields. And they didn't come back home for about half an hour, at which point their mothers, who were home, started getting concerned. But an, an uncle to the girls called Nazru, who was in his 20s, a quite um, scatty and, and unreliable young man, shows up at the Shakya household and, and says, you know, uh, something to the effect of, um, Okay. Now, one day when I was in sadatganj and I was walking with uh, with, with uh, the father of the older girl, Padma, uh, Jivan Lal, he pointed me to an animal shelter and he said, "Oh, you know, that's my animal shelter. That's where Nazru came to inform me ki keth me aam hai." And I remember just stopping in my tracks and saying, um, n- "No, I." That's not what I heard. I heard that Nazru came to your house, you know, the joint family where all 18 members of the family resided. He came to your house and he said, me and Jivan Lal said, no, no, he came to the animal shop." And this is such a, a seemingly small piece of information, right? Because the essential facts, you may argue, don't change. But actually, it tells you everything you need to know. Um, about, about Nazru and about the situation. Because, you know, every man in the family had an animal shelter and two girls went missing. That is two, the, two, two sets of parents. And yet Nazru chose to go to one particular person. He singled out one particular person to say, me and he knew where that one particular person was going to be. And that is really important to understand. Why did he do that? Why did he single this one guy when he could have gone to the family house? Everybody was at home. But no, he sought out Jeevan Lal. There was a reason he wanted Jeevan Lal. And Jeevan Lal alone, the father of the older girl, Padma, age 16, he wanted him to have this piece of information. He's a close member of the family, but he, he lives in the fields. The Shakyas live in the actual village. But he knew that at that time of night, Jivan Lal would not be at home eating his dinner. He would be in his animal shelter. So there's an an intimacy uh, to that relationship that is also revealed by the simple fact. So you know this is how reporting works. You have to you have to spend enough time with people that you you actually find out what happened. And and one way to do it is really just by you know. Talking to them and sort of getting them to think in a way that you that, that is beneficial to you, and you know it works really well um, if you say to somebody for example, you know um, wh- what was the atmosphere like that night? The girls went missing, they'll say "Tiki to ta I mean like it wasn't any different, right but that that's not what that 's not what makes the scene. What makes a scene is, oh, I didn't hear anything. It was like all the animals had gone. All the birds had flown away. It was like the village was empty. And those are not even my words. Those are the words that come from the person, because then you say to that person, yeah, I get that to you, nothing was different. But can you just tell me what you heard? Can you tell me what you smelled? Can you tell me what you felt? If you do this with anybody, by the way, if you just do it a couple of times, people really get into it. And then, you know, they they don't wait for you to ask them. Then they're, they're like, oh, you know, and by the way, I know you're going to ask me this. I heard a motorcycle revving. And that, as as readers will find out, the sound of this, the sight of one particular motorcycle on the night the children went missing is a really important part of, of the search for them, right?
0: But, you know, what we have noticed is, you know, India has so many reporters, there are so many stories, but not not every reporter has that, uh, you know, sensitivity, not every reporter cares about their subjects, but you clearly cared and you clearly, you know, paid attention to details. And that's how you found answers that no one else did. So that's exactly what you know, what we loved about the book. But the way you've written it, I mean, it's like a crime thriller. I mean, I was on the edge of my seat just turning the pages, wanting to know what's happening next. So how did you decide to write it in such a way? You know, like it almost reads like a who done
2: it. And I think that one way to circumvent this is to, to do what I do and, and to do it. You know, I enjoy doing it, which is focusing on people. You know, uh, you don't want to talk about the criminal justice system. But if I tell you in real terms what it means by showing you the impact that it has on Padma and Lali, you will be engaged because, you know, because there is a relatability that that, that comes across. It's actually the technical aspect of how you construct a book. So a book is obviously a story, right? But that's only what's happening on top actually under the hood, there is a lot of technical stuff that's happening in terms of how the narrative is built, in terms of how information is given out, at what points it's given out, in terms of the speed. The momentum is a very delicate thing because, you know, you can't have so much momentum that people zip through the book without Gaining anything without remembering anything. You know, you can't be like, yeah, that was a good experience, but I can't for the life of me remember what it was about. You know? Um, at the same time, you don't want, want people to be bogged down by details. And I think that is such a big challenge for me in, in the earlier drafts of this book. Oh my gosh. You know, I couldn't, like I couldn't write one sentence without then going into, you know, Here are the facts and figures, and this is what somebody said. And 100 years ago, this was the same thing was happening. I I couldn't stop myself, but that's what happens in that's what early drafts are for. You know, early drafts are for vomiting out all your information, for proving to yourself that you know everything, that you've done all your work, right? And once you've proved yourself, you can just go on, uh, uh, go go on about the business of actually telling a narrative that achieves what you set out to achieve. And what any writer wants is for you to end the book, right? If you haven't completed the book, then I've messed up. But in a matter like this, it is particularly important that you stay with me because this is a story that matters. This is the story of what it is to be a young woman in most parts of India today. Right, because if seventy percent of our population lives in the rural areas, this is going to be their life experience. And many aspects of of Padman Lali's experience, by the way, you know, the fact that they came from a conservative family, the fact that their movements were monitored, the facts that uh, the fact that they were expected to marry who, whomever their parents said, uh, the manner in which the police treated them, the postmortem, on and on. Frankly, you know, unless you are like super, you know, top of the hierarchy. You're going to encounter all of these things in your life as a woman in India, uh, in in some form or the other. And so this is this is a huge story that is masquerading as the story of two two little girls. Uh, and in therefore, in order to make sure that I gave you all the information and I showed you. That world. I just needed to work on all the technical aspects uh, of the story, you know. And, and to any sort of early writers who are listening to this and thinking, okay, so that sounds really complicated. It's not. It's uh. It all comes from doing uh, drafts, and you the more drafts you do, the 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 more of a handle you get on your material. And uh, one one tip for anybody who's interested is. Always read your material out loud. You know, I mean, my book is, is, you know, pretty good size, but I have read it out loud from start to finish dozens of times. Uh, I never really thought of it, to be honest, as, as true crime. That, that was not my idea. I mean, I know it came from my publishers after they read the book.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your tips with our listeners. Uh, there's so much to take in here. You know thinking about both your books uh beautiful thing and the good girls in beautiful thing, you sort of occupied this space that was a woman's space um and we saw the world through the bar dancer Leela in this case, you were entering a space that is a man's world. you were in Uttar Pradesh, you were speaking to all of these men, you were speaking to police policemen um how as a woman did you navigate it and what would what tips would you have for a woman journalist or investigative journalist who wants to enter a man's world and report from there?
2: For me, if I focus on the the, the potential for things to go wrong, that can become uh, an, an overwhelming thing and, and and sort of distract me from my work. But Sarvesh was one of the five policemen who refused, who, you know, was used extremely um, vulgar language with me on the phone, and who made it very clear to me on the phone that, you know, he would, uh, uh, he would attack me if I tracked him down. And I know which uh, district he lives in, you know, uh, it, it wouldn't have been particularly hard for me to find him. I mean, I found everybody else. But I had to ask myself if this man was worth, you know, we was, we, was worth whatever he, he had threatened, uh, and the answer is no. So you also need to make those choices, and I made what I believe was the right choice for me. And in terms of you know navigating uh, a man's world, I think uh, perhaps they feel that it's odd that I show up uh, without anybody else, without a, a, another reporter, without a photographer, that I'm there for many days, that I'm driving around, they may find it weird. That's okay. Uh, in, in my experience, when I make it very clear what I am there for, when I make it clear that I have done my work, so I'm asking the right questions, there is a reason, there is a purpose to, to my presence, I think people forget. Um, and if they don't forget, they certainly answer my questions and they are very civil. So yeah, that, that, that's how it is. Wow, it was actually
0: like a toolkit for women to go out there and investigate the stories that they, you know, that they want to really investigate. One thing that really stayed with me so far, I mean, you know, both your books, Sonia, the characters are just mind-blowing. I mean, I can remember their gestures. I can remember what they have said. I remember, I remember their actions. I mean, everything, even be it facial gestures. I mean, how do you do it?
2: Everybody is unique. Everybody has something that makes them stand out. And it, it- May not seem like that when you first encounter people, especially when you encounter them in a group, right especially in a place like Uttar Pradesh, which is a place that follows very very strict rules uh, along gender lines of what is acceptable behavior, uh, even down to who may speak uh, in public, where somebody may sit. the women don't even sit uh, at the same level as the men, right so the men if the men sit on the charpoy, the women sit on the floor. If the men are, are, are drinking tea, it's the women who are, uh, you know, somewhere else in a different part of the courtyard preparing that tea for them. So you can't even get people together. But uh, I think that in, in this case, you know, the first year was not, was a write-off, you know, and you have to accept that. Um, and I think it just becomes better after that. And I think, you know, you relax and other people also relax around you and That makes it possible for you to to see people and to talk to them and to observe them. And and that's really all it is.
1: The amount of sheer hard work and persistence that has gone into it. And it's there at every level of your book. And that's what makes it just so mind-blowing. But you know, your books are, you're dealing with things that are very heavy, serious. Um, How do you keep yourself going while writing these books? What do you do for yourself? To lighten in the mood. Um, how do you keep up that momentum?
2: I don't go over my work the moment I finish it. Um, so, you know, if I spend, if I'm in Badayu and I've spent the whole day in Katra Ganj, I come back completely wiped out, right? Because the hotel is, the Badanyu is six hours from Delhi, but my hotel in Badanyu is about uh, two and a half hours from the village. So that's like five hours just on those roads. And then all the, the conversations in between, which are very intense, sometimes because of course, because of the information that is being shared, but also because of, you know, the amount of concentration that is required. And concentration is something that I I find so hard, especially now, you know, like to talk to somebody without also simultaneously scrolling through my device or or sort of daydreaming or, or doing half a dozen other things. And when I come back, I just put that all away and I, you know, have some nice food, have a hot shop, watch something really mindless. You know, it has to be something that I've watched a hundred times before, like a, a, an episode of Friends, an episode of Big Bang Theory. And it just it's just a reset because, you know, the next day is looming. So it's just. It's a little bit of self-care that that just kind of really refreshes me and helps me m- mobilize.
0: They are really uh, good shows, and since we are talking about shows, one show I would love to recommend <laughs> is Shit's is, uh, Creek. I'm not oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, I know it's it. good. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, recently I I wasn't well, and you know, I was just looking for something to take my mind. Of my yeah. brain and and I can't believe Shits Creek is like the most hilarious, uh, you know, sitcom I've come across recently. So yeah, I mean, it it can do wonders. I think you know, just yeah. we all need that breather. We all need that break. So, Tara, what is
1: your favorite sitcom? No, I agree. I You're just I, I just money. watched Shit <laughs> Creek, so I'm on board. I'm on board with all of this. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: You know, why don't we you know talk about the books that have you know made a difference in our lives? So you know, I was just discussing with Tara the other day, you know, like your childhood really forms a big part of your identity. I think for as long as I remember, I wanted to be a writer. So, you know, we were curious, Sonia, did you always want to be a journalist? And and you know, like what kind of books did you read uh, growing up? And, and has that influenced your storytelling skills?
2: I always wanted to be a writer since the time that I can remember. Uh, there was nothing else that interested me And I wanted to be a novelist because I I didn't have um, experience of any other sort of writing. uh, It it was only much later that I was like, oh, actually, I don't know how to write novels. So, you know, quick, quick switch. But um, the reason I became a journalist was because I thought it would help me become a a good writer. You know, so it was kind of a means to an end. And then, you know, the, the sort of realizing, oh, I can't write novels. And then also realizing that, wow, I I love reporting and I love being a part of this this world as things happen. Right. I want to be in the I I want to be in the midst of things as they're happening. I want to understand them for myself. Uh, And in, in terms of like what I read, and I think this is the experience of everybody who grew up in, say, you know, in a certain kind of household in Delhi in the 80s, it was just such a mishmash of books, right? I mean, um, it was whatever my mom was reading. So I I remember reading Eric Segal's Love Story. I remember reading Rebecca. Um, And I had Enid Blyton's, you know. I read a lot of the sort of the the classics as well, you know, um, Jane Austen, David Copperfield. So it taught me about how to write in a way that... um, makes the story appealing to to anybody who likes a good story uh, irrespective of how old they are you know that simplicity that you take for granted is actually mastery of language it's mastery of story when you read a story and you're like oh, wow that was super simple to understand
1: yeah I mean that's so that's so important because I work as an editor so I always uh, you know try and work with authors and say that you know the less is more and if you can and if you make things actually easy for a reader that's what's going to get them reading from a to z i was
0: curious to know uh, whether you know you received any backlash how do you deal with uh, a negative reaction or how do you deal with a backlash of whenever you you know report something that is controversial
2: i think the work has to speak for itself and it does and i think that if uh, you know somebody or ha- has an argument with a fact, uh, you know, I mean that that's that might be worth looking into. But if people are simply uh going to contest something for the sake of contesting it simply because they don't like you talking about something, I, I just don't even think it's worth worth the time, you know, to engage.
1: No, that makes complete sense. So this is something interesting that I think about whenever I read creative nonfiction and narrative nonfiction. Because it reads so much like fiction and there's so many storytelling elements, you know, how much leeway is there for exaggeration? So it's written so well, you know, Nazru's tears were so re- so relentless. Even the villagers were taken aback. The young man was crying as though a cobra had fallen into his lap. So, you know, what is the balance between, you know, fact and fiction in writing this way?
2: <laughs> there is, there's, you know, there is no place for fiction. Uh, a book is either fiction or it's nonfiction, and this is a book of nonfiction. So, you know, the fact is that Najru's tears were so relentless that his his own uh, family members, you know, his extended family members and members of his clan who supported him, who, you know, who were there because they they believed him, even though, you know, he's a sort of a, unfortunately an unbelievable sort of fellow. We're thinking, why are you crying? Um, you're crying as though a cobra has fallen into your lap and nothing is happening to you. Nobody is even talking to you. So this is simply how things played out. And if you talk to enough people and if you ask them the right questions, and asking the right questions often means asking pointed questions, and it also often means, you know, that you have done enough. Of your own digging around that you know that you know the answer. And then you know, you're then then you're in a position to even ask supplementary questions and so forth. So that's that's how it works.
1: That that answers
0: a lot of my questions because there's not much exposure to, you know, narrative nonfiction. You do wonder, you know, what the genre is about, but I think I've learned a lot uh, you know, in this episode. Okay, so let's go to the fun round of this interview.
1: It's the rapid fire round.
2: Okay. Is it dog walking or reading? <laughs> uh, dog walking.
1: Your top three narrative nonfiction books.
2: Oh, okay. So um, I really love uh, Random Family by Adrian Nicole LeBlanc. Um, it's a book about poverty and crime in the Bronx. I also liked American Fire, another a, a great book about this arsonist uh, running amok. These are uh, you know, these are two pretty great books.
1: Awesome, a lot of recommendations. Okay, so one one pandemic habit that has been very difficult to shake off.:
2: No, I, I um uh, no, I'm, I'm an annoyingly disciplined person, so yeah, I just have no, I've just been doing basically the same things that I did before the pandemic.: Oh,
0: wow, Okay, that's really inspiring. <laughs> yes, <are> an inspiration.
2: <laughs> so what's next? So I'm I'm going to start working on a new book and, um, you know, speaking of pandemics, hopefully I'll get the vaccination, start traveling again and then start uh, reporting something new. Because I feel very unmoored if I'm not working on a book. You know, I mean, working on sort of reported pieces is great, but it just it's not the same thing. So I need to get back.
0: So maybe ask which places is that you're traveling to? Uh, you know
2: back, back back to India
0: okay right another story from India so we are looking forward to that Sonia best of luck
1: thank you so much best of luck and we can't wait for your next book we'll be one of your first readers <laughs> Um, and okay, yes you know on that note thank you so much for making the time to be on the show
2: yeah you guys too thanks Tara thank you Mikhail. this was um, really great fun thanks for having me
0: Ah, this makes me want to step out and seek out stories, Tara. I mean, I want to talk to people, observe their reactions, gestures, just like she did. I'm just, I'm so fed up of sitting indoors and just listening to people through screens.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really, you do really get stimulated when you step out of the house. You get so many more ideas. Can't wait to do that soon. And I loved what she said about careful listening uh, because you know, the other day somebody from my family was talking to me, and as usual, I was on my Instagram scrolling. <laughs> so I think she gave us, she gave yeah. us a wake, wake up call. We need to listen for what people are not saying in order to get answers. That was so poignant.
0: By the way, if you're looking for answers about the publishing industry, do check out our sister podcast, The Book People.
1: Yep, yeah, it's available on all podcasting platforms and as a YouTube channel. So we hope that this episode gave you insights into investigative journalism and nonfiction writing. And as mentioned, if you are looking for guidance with your writing, you can reach out to us at connect at boundindia.com, where our writing mentors can help you.
0: Yeah, we can't wait to hear from you. And by the way, on our next episode, we will be covering translation for the first time ever because we have received so many requests. And we'll be talking to both the writer and the translator. So, Anita Agnihotri is a veteran writer who has written over 35 books in Bengali. And Arunava Sinha is one of the most renowned translators in India today. He's written over 60 translations. My God. Yeah,
1: It's crazy. I mean, both these people are so accomplished. And we'll be talking to both of them about their latest book, The Sickle, which talks about the farmer's plight in India and more harsh truths. And we're going to be learning about their relationship as writer and translator and how they managed to get so much done. (laughs) Tune in next (laughs) Wednesday to find out. Until then, see you next time.